Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and this is our special Monday edition of Comfort's Corner, where we take an inside look at what's happening in and around the transit industry as we deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. This is Monday, April 20th and 21st show, and today we've got a special show for you. Last week, I held a CEO roundtable, a virtual live one online, where we had close to 100 people online listening, and we had some of the top CEOs in the country with us uh, virtually on camera to talk about uh, the, the pandemic and the response and how we get out of it. Our guests were Inez Evans, CEO of Indigo in Indianapolis, Scott Bogren, CEO and Executive Director of the Community Transportation Association of America, which represents mid-size and smaller transit systems, Wade Coombs, who is uh, head of transportation at Strathcona County in Canada, Bill Carpenter, the CEO of the Rochester, New York area transit system called RTS, Julie Tim, the CEO of GRTC in Richmond, Virginia, and Kevin Quinn, the CEO of the Maryland Transit Administration. We spent 90 minutes with them talking through what they've been doing now and what we hope to do. We had some great insights. Bill Carpenter, has a great kind of list of what are being considered best practices for the industry, and it's all for you today free here on Transit Unplugged. We hope you enjoy it as a reference point as you navigate your way through this coronavirus pandemic and hopefully are finding your way out the other side with a game plan uh, to return our ridership to whatever the new normal is going to be and remain a safe, efficient, reliable provider with world-class customer service of public transportation for the essential workers and beyond as we move forward. Thanks for being with us today. Stay safe out there and enjoy this special 90-minute episode. Great to be with you today on our CEO roundtable. We have about 150 people gathered with uh, six of America's top CEOs uh, talking transit and COVID-19, this pandemic which has really given the public transit industry a gut punch. Uh, And so we're going to be talking about the response, how it's impacted these CEOs, uh, transit systems, and what is our game plan to get back up to whatever our new normal is. Uh, So first off, I want to introduce our guests all at one time, and then I'll ask them to kind of talk a little bit about their system for a few minutes, and then we're going to get into the actual impact and and some of the strategies uh, that each of them have put in place. First off is Inez Evans, who is CEO of Indigo uh, in Indianapolis, uh, big transit system there, Uh, an older friend of mine. We've been friends for many years, uh, worked around the industry together, and so happy to have her on board. She is one of our uh, bright new female CEOs of transit systems. Uh, I I said 2019 was the year of the woman when it comes to CEOs. (laughs) Julie got her job then too. A lot of of transit CEOs were uh, women. I think they were tired of us old men and try to get some fresh blood and new new thinking in there, which is great. And so we're happy to have uh, uh, both Inez and Julie Tim on board. Julie is the CEO of GRTC in Richmond and become a good friend of mine. And she's got a lot of great ideas as as well. Uh, She came from Nashville with our friend Steve down there and she is uh, making a mark for herself in the state of Virginia. I've heard so many good things about her from my colleagues. Uh, Scott Bogren, uh, who is uh, Executive Director of the Community Transportation Association of America, CTAA, is, uh, is, I'm very honored to have him with us today. He is one of the longtime industry veterans. We've known each other for, I think, 30 years since I first got into the business. He was working there as editor of the magazine at CTA and now represents all the mid-sized systems and smaller transit systems across America. And then um, 
Wade Coombs is here from uh, Canada. He is uh, CEO of Strathcona County and become a good friend. We share a lot of the same worldview and so happy to have him with us. Bill Carpenter, the first guest on my uh, Transit Unplugged podcast, who I was able to hey, go Paul. visit him and then the next day go see the U2 concert in Buffalo. So it's always has pleasant memories in my mind about my visit to see Bill. And uh, Bill has some amazing best practices that I've actually posted on my um LinkedIn page. If you want to see, he actually wrote them up for me. It's very, thank you. You did that. He has like uh, 10 or 15 kind of to do things that they've done there in Rochester, New York uh, at his transit system, uh, RTS, and just amazing. And then I saved the best for last, my buddy, Kevin Quinn, <laughs> who uh, Kevin was the architect of Baltimore Link. Sorry, you all are great. But, <laughs> but uh, the guy I worked with personally for uh, two and a half years there at MTA and uh, so happy that he is the new CEO of MTA in Baltimore. Uh, he designed the whole Baltimore Link project. Who better to take over uh, when I left? And, and uh, he's got a big operation running six different modes of transportation. We'll be talking about some of that in a few minutes. So thank you all so much for being here. We'll give you a virtual clap. <laughs> Everybody online. All right. So let's start with you, Kevin. Why don't we start with you? We'll do it in backwards order. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for just a minute and, uh, you know, your transit system and uh, just kind of a scope of what you do. Sure. So uh, my name is Kevin Quinn. I'm the CEO of uh, Maryland Transit Administration, as Paul noted. Uh, I've been in that role for nearly three years now. Uh, MDOT MTA is the 12th largest uh, agency, transit agency in America uh, with six modes uh, and key to know is that in the Baltimore region, we've got bus, uh, light rail, metro, and a, a pretty sizable paratransit service. And also statewide, we have MARC commuter rail uh, as well as commuter bus service. And statewide, we do about 100 million rides uh, per year. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty sizable uh, operation. Um, uh, and uh, uh, you know, this, this uh, coronavirus, this crisis has has hit us hard and you know we're doing our best to support the city and baltimore region thank you kevin julie julie tim from richmond well, sure uh grtc i've been here for six months uh, welcome to grtc and we are uh, probably a, a smaller mid-sized agency we run about an operational budget around 55 million a year 150 buses 100 vans 45 routes between about 500 employees with another 100 in the paratransit system um, we're probably one of the few systems across the country, I think, that was seeing increased double-digit increases in ridership um, since uh, 2018, right up until about March. Uh, obviously, then we started seeing some massive drops, and a lot of that was due to the implementation of the BRT, the Pulse, in June of 2018, along with a massive system redesign where we went from having very uh, moderate to low-frequency service to having uh, our core network having 10 to 15 minute frequency and service and of corresponding with that uh, was that high ridership. So a very exciting place to be and a very great system. That's awesome. Uh, thank you. And uh, Bill Carpenter, Rochester. Hey Paul and uh, great being here. Uh, we've got a system, 900 employees, 420 buses. Uh, we serve 16 million customers. Uh, our core area, geographic area, the city of Rochester and Monroe County, the county seat of Monroe County is Rochester. And so that's a 40-foot bus service people are familiar with, a robust paratransit service. But then we serve uh, seven regional counties as well. Uh, so we've got uh, the urban core ridership issue around COVID-19, as well as counties with as few as 35,000 population 
uh, serving 30 to 40 people a day at this point during COVID-19 and making sure the essential trips are still being taken care of safely for customers and employees. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Wade from Strathcona County in uh, Canada. Oh, thanks, Paul. And I feel like the little brother on this group because uh, we're the small system. Uh, we, uh, <clears throat> we're in Edmonton, just outside Edmonton, Alberta, which is, uh, you want to have a rough idea, go to Vegas and just head north and you'll find us. Um, we, we are a specialized municipality, so we have a, an urban footprint uh, called Sherwood Park, which is the largest hamlet out of about 70,000 people. And then we have a rural area of about uh, 30,000 people. We cover uh, a footprint of about 1,200 square uh, kilometers, which is about 460 square miles that we provide service to. Uh, our predominant uh, service is commuter service into Edmonton. We go into the downtown core, into the University of Alberta. Um, we also have the local service on, for convention. We do the con uh, local and, and uh, you know, on our specialized transit. We provide service obviously in the local and into Edmonton. And we also provide it into the rural area. We cover that large geographical zone. We have a system, uh, 70, 76 buses. Um, 24 of those are double-decker, which we use on our commuter service. And then we have 13 uh, specialized transit buses. Awesome, thank you. Inez Evans from Indigo, Indianapolis. Hi everybody, um, Inez Evans, CEO of Indigo. I've been here since October of uh, 2019. So what is that, seven months, eight months? I don't know, I'm losing track. With COVID, we don't know what day it is anymore. That's the truth. Um, <laughs> So I run the largest uh, system here in the state of Indiana. Indiana. Uh, we have uh, about 875 employees to date, um, about uh, 208 buses. We, our ridership is about 9.2 million a year, and our budget sits anywhere between 111 to 116 million. Um, we have 31 routes, including the red line that we started in September. Um, also, yeah, I got here in August. How did I forget that? It was my son's birthday. Hello. Um, <laughs> uh, so we started the red line in September uh, 1st, matter of fact, is when we started that. And uh, I guess we'll go into more specifics about ridership and things of that nature. Uh, and uh, we were working on our expanded Marion County Transit Plan before all this craziness started. So we were about to implement our network redesign in June and now that's been delayed. So that's our, our biggest thing right now. Okay, very good. Thanks Inez. And uh, you'll notice that we have a representative from a really large system with Kevin and then some mid-sized systems. Uh, and uh, Wade's kind of, I'd say it's still a mid-sized system. Uh, Scott Bogan represents all the mid-sized systems and even some of the real smaller ones, like the one I used to run in Queen Anne's County. We had 15 buses when I first got started. So Scott, tell us about your association and, and uh, you know, what you all do. First, Paul, thanks for the invite. And it's great to kind of share a virtual stage with such an accomplished group of people in the transit field. So uh, appreciate the invite. Yes, CTAA, we have about 1400 members around the country. Our members are smaller cities, rural communities, non-emergency medical transportation providers, veterans transportation services. Uh, we have a number of tribal transit members. So we, we tend to focus in that kind of sector and our work 
some of which I'll talk about, has really been focused originally right as the outbreak kind of in the pandemic occurred in working with Congress to secure funding so that we could continue to pay employees across the country and, uh, and ideally be repaid for all the losses that were uh, occurring. And it's really now changing into a look at safety. And, and with, that, with that part of the work done, how do we keep our workforce safe? How do we contribute to the um, uh, stay at home orders and what's essential and all those kinds of issues? That's good. Thanks, Scott. And how long have you been working there at CTAA? 31 years, Paul. Now, the reason I say that is he doesn't look much older than 31. So <laughs> that's what I always say. He's, he's found the uh, fountain of youth somehow. I, he hasn't changed. I've known this guy for 30 years, and he looks maybe five years older than when I met him. I, I so. need you around more often, Paul. You're <laughs> very good for my ego. And he's also stayed skinny, unlike me. We were both skinny guys at one time, and something happened. I don't know. <laughs> he kept it. But – uh so anyway, thanks so much. That's a good, uh, a good look at kind of the cross the spectrum we've got of all of North America and different systems are, are being involved. So Bill, I want to go with you since you're on the main screen right now anyway. And uh, could you tell us, um, I'd like to just kick it off if you don't mind, tell us some of what's been happening in your system for a minute or two, and then some of these great best practices that you've implemented. Yeah, and I think for all of us, I keep trying to remind my staff, if you go back to March 1st, uh, our state budget is April 1, uh, so we were busy working with our folks in the state capital in Albany and trying to maximize revenue. And I remember March 9th and 10th, uh, we were in Albany for our advocacy day. Do you shake hands? Do you tap boots? Do you bump elbows? What do you do? Uh, and on my way home from Albany, got word that the APTA legislative conference had been canceled and thinking, Boy, are they being overly cautious or what? Uh, and by Saturday, we had stopped collecting fares on our smaller buses, our paratransit service. And by the following Friday, we were doing rear boarding uh, and had waived fares. So customers didn't have to touch the fare box and we could keep the bus operators secure. So this has been a very sudden change. Uh, the guiding principles that I've used uh, with my executive team and leadership team is when this is over, we want to be able to say no one died on our watch because of something we could have done differently. Uh, so we've been providing people with hand sanitizer. I had to beg, borrow, and steal initially where all the store hand sanitizer was gone. Uh, worked with all my connections to get uh, hand sanitizer. Uh, so bus operators had that in their hands. Uh, I'm not sure where we're getting some of our masks from at this point. I feel a little bit like calling two or three of our procurement people radar uh, from the old mass show of, I thought these weren't available to anyone and uh, why do we have some? And we didn't have enough for every operator initially. Uh, so how do you make those decisions? But uh, what we could do immediately was clean more frequently. We could add cleaning uh, during the day when the buses were at our uh, beautiful award-winning transit center. Uh, we would provide the best personal protection equipment we could, whatever that meant. And uh, for contamination, as an example, those are the folks that got the best masks. If we had any gowns, those are the ones that got the gowns. Uh, we developed leave policies uh, so that if you're over 70, underlying health condition, you don't have to work. We will pay you, stay home. But just as importantly, if there's someone at home 
that's over 70 that you live with, someone with an underlying health condition. Don't want you worried about, well, I might get sick, I'll recover, but when I bring it home, uh, that could cause uh, someone at home to die. So very proactive with our leave policies. Uh, we've got about 15% of our workforce out on a leave because it's safe for them to be there. And then we're doing everything we can for those who are coming to work to make sure it's as safe as possible for them. And uh, so far, uh, we have had, across an eight-county area, we've had three people test positive. Uh, it's always nerve-wracking, but uh, no one has tested positive the last two and a half weeks. Uh, and the people that did test positive got it from their family members, not from being on the job. When the Department of Health did their analysis, um, it wasn't because of what happened on the job. Um, so again, the guiding principle, when this is over, make sure you've done everything you can to keep people safe. That's and uh, I, the one thing I would add, too, is the regular communication with board members. Uh, they, uh, they understand how busy we are here, uh, but they're also very anxious themselves. Are we doing everything we can? And uh, keeping those lines of communication open has been critical to keep uh, their engagement, the elected officials, the other community stakeholders, uh, as we make changes, uh, keep everyone involved. Thank you. We'll come back to you in a little bit. I'm interested for you to share in a few moments about um, some of the calls you've been having across the community. I think those are some best practices. But I want to go to Kevin Quinn, who is a CEO of MTA in Baltimore, which is a unique agency, kind of like Delaware and MBTA in Massachusetts. It's a state agency. Kevin doesn't have a board. He works for the Secretary of Transportation and for the governor and also has a whole statewide responsibility with 100 million passengers a year. Kevin, tell us about how this has impacted you and what are some of the best practices that you've been able to come up with to help mitigate it? Yeah, I think, um, so, you know, first, you know, when, uh, so our governor, Governor Hogan, um, uh, essentially implemented a, a telework policy on the administrative um, side of things first. And so uh, very, very quickly, uh, our IT group, um, who's absolutely amazing, and many of you, I'm sure, have uh, equally, you know, amazing IT groups that set you up virtually very, very fast. I felt like we, we advanced two to three years into the future in two to three weeks just by uh, everybody getting set up with laptops and being able to work from home, being able to do payroll remotely. Oh my gosh, I never thought our agency would be able to do something like that, but we are, right? So uh, on the administrative side, we, we really had to advance into the future uh, very quickly. Um, on the operations side, we, we also had to adjust very fast. And so we did uh, pretty quickly, one of our first things we did was rear door boarding. Um, we uh, have a bus fleet, about 750 buses. And uh, our bus maintenance crew was uh, really quite amazing in um, getting software fixes done so that operators uh, at their console could uh, open up uh, rear doors um, right there from where they were sitting. We had many bus uh, model years where that wasn't possible. And so they very quickly uh, uh, outfitted essentially three or four years of buses. So hundreds of buses in a matter of three or four days. And uh, within the, and so we now have uh, no buses out there that don't allow rear door boarding. Um, and uh, and uh, we've also blocked off uh, kind of the operator area as well. Those were some of the very, very first steps that we took. Um, we also have been really careful about social distancing in our um, kind of assembly rooms. We have four major bus divisions and there's a lot of operators gathering in there. And so um, we, uh, you know, what do you do when you have kind of a constrained facility? You know, where do you put all these people that are showing up for work every day? And so we actually put a, a separate bus outside. Actually, each division now has two or three buses that we kind of call our 
like our social distancing bus. And I think other agencies have done this as well. Um, so uh, uh, we did, we, we've done that. I think, you know, a, a particular surprise to me is uh, actually today is the first day of our uh, a major service reduction for us. For about the last week, uh, few months, I guess a couple months, uh, however long it's been, um, we've had our workforce really show up every single day and, and we haven't cut a lot of service. Um, we're just now starting to kind of see that uh, absenteeism increase a bit. Um, but up until now, you know, our philosophy has really been keep providing service as much as we can, keep protecting your workers, and that's what we've really been committed to. Excellent. Thank you. When we come back to you, Kevin, just remind, uh, remind me that I want to ask you about commuter services and what's happening there. That'll be in our second sure. round of questions. Yeah. Inez, in Indianapolis, tell us about what's happening there and how you all have responded to some of the highlights. Well, I think we're, we're you know, uh, right on point with what everybody has said. Um, we've seen our service drop about 65% in ridership during this time period. We did execute the rear door boarding, um, taping off the area to uh, get drivers away as much as we possibly could from other passengers, implemented same type of uh, restrictions on our open door or paratransit service where we're only allowing one person in our minivan and then every other seat in our uh, cutaway buses. Uh, we've gone to training our operators to uh, help our maintenance team in detailing the fleet during um, midday. And so we use our extra board. So we reduced our service down to Saturday level service, which means I have 200 and something people sitting on extra board now, 100 and something every day. So in working collaboratively with the union, uh, they agreed uh, to allow operators to do things outside of their normal duties. So we put them through hazard training. And so they are now at the transit center uh, at uh, peak, off peak and another uh, zone to help detail the buses. Uh, they go on, we tell the passengers to get off, we sanitize the bus, passengers are now. So it's a great service a little bit, but to your point, it gives individuals a comfort level when they see us getting on the buses and sanitizing the facilities. We did close our um, Carson Transit Center to uh, individuals, our lobby area and our bathrooms. Um, our security just was not successful in keeping social distancing down in the lobby area and the bathrooms. So we uh, closed it with consensus of the city. Uh, some other things that we've done is we're doing training remotely. So today, matter of fact, we set up a closed course virtual, <laughs> uh, virtually on a computer for operators to do training. Um, we're also catching up on our annual training using computers and such. So they can dial in now to do their drug and alcohol refresher training, ethics training, you know, and just a number of those things that we, you know, we're always struggling to pull operators off of road during revenue service. We're doing that now remotely. And I think that's been a tremendous success. Uh, we're using our paratransit uh, open door program as a lot of other transit systems are to uh, help us with delivering uh, food services uh, at the request of the city. And so that's, we're now up to five days a week with I think about 15 buses now. <laughs> so paratransit is staying busy, uh, which is a good thing. And putting sanitizing stations right before you come into the door um, we added that. Uh, we're working with a local company to work on getting the barriers put in because the manufacturer is now 12 weeks out. So we're now working with the manufacturer here to see if they can get it done quickly. 
so those are some of our, our major things besides just as everybody else said, we had to ramp up our business continuity plan to be able to get folks working within two days instead of two months. So, and um, so those are some of the same things that we're working on. Excellent. That's, that's really good. Um, Wade Coombs, uh, what is happening in Canada? Well, a lot of the same things that you're talking about or the other panelists have been talking about. And, you know, here up in, in Alberta anyways, uh, in our province, it, things really started to escalate uh, about mid-month. Uh, the Premier uh, closed down all the public and uh, post-secondary schools and uh, high schools and elementary schools. And so we saw things dramatically change after that. Uh, a lot of stay-at-home messages, work from home. So. I think it was about the 16th of March then that happened. And so starting that Monday, we started to see significant drop in, in ridership. Um, we monitored the service for the first part of that week and then came up with suggestions. Uh, and by the start of the next week, what we did is we just took the, the additional 15 minute service off. We had it during uh, peak hours and went with 30 minute all day long. Um, and one of the benefits that came out of that was we were able to uh, manage the physical distancing requirements uh, because the ridership, uh, we've seen it drop uh, 85, 90%. Um, so what we're seeing now is we're seeing, you know, five or six people on the bus at any one time at maximum on our local services. And we'll see, and some of our routes going into Edmonton on the commuter service, we might see up to 15 or 16. And in those routes, we'll, we'll continue to use the uh, double-decker buses because that allows people to social distance. Um, we're fortunate here in Strathcona County. I've worked in three other uh, systems before coming here and the level of cleaning that was done here uh, on a regular basis, even before this, uh, every flu season we would start uh, our cleaning and we do here on a daily basis, uh, kind of like some people call mini interiors or uh, detailed cleaning uh, where we spend about 20 minutes to half hour on each bus every day. Um, and in the flu season, we'd we use a hospital grade cleaner to uh, clean the buses and disinfect them. So we had already had a head start on that aspect over what a lot of other people had. Um, but what we're doing now is um, if an operator sees somebody who's coughing or sneezing on the bus, uh, they notify us, we'll pull that bus out of service and clean it. Uh, also the buses, a lot of them will go out in the morning, we'll bring them back in the afternoon um, and clean them again. So we're up in the cleaning. On our specialized transit, uh, what we started to do early on is we started to screen the calls, ask some of the questions that our provincial health authority has said, uh, as uh, checking them to see if they're having any symptoms, are they displaying anything? Uh, and if they are, then we would actually not take them on their trips. Uh, and what we've actually moved to is actually uh, on specialized transit is to uh, only provide essential services. So again, if you go in grocery store, go into the drugstore to pick up your prescriptions, or you're going to a medical appointment, or you're going to work, those are the only trips that we'll take them for. None of the other social uh, trips are being allowed. And that's come a long ways. It was interesting, we, uh, within a week to week and a half, went to the rear door boarding also. One of the things that we noticed there, because I had seen on social media with some of the other systems, how they blocked off right behind the operator so that passengers couldn't come up. Um, because we only have a ramp on the front of the buses, we had to keep that open for people coming in with mobility devices. 
but one of our staff has suggested that why don't we look at that first row of seats behind those mobility areas and block that off and so we've done that so that again it protects our operator and uh, provides that social distancing physical distancing for them um, we did notice, start to notice some loitering in our terminals um, as some of the, especially the young kids, didn't have places to, to hang out like they normally did, started hanging around our terminals. So we increased some of the security there using some of our relief operators because we uh, had some uh, ability to use them now with some of the reduced services and had them there. We've also gone to closing uh, their our terminals in the evenings while the buses will still come, the, the facility's not open. Um, we closed our uh, customer service center to the public uh, within a week and only took uh, phone calls. Um, so those are some of the things that we've done. Um, other than that, similar to again, what everybody else is saying. Yep, thank you, Wade Coombs. So thank you for joining us today. For those of you who have come on since we've started, today is a live CEO roundtable with six of North America's top public transit CEOs and we're discussing their response to the COVID-19 crisis and kind of like in a few minutes, we'll be talking about uh, how we get out of this and how we get back to ridership. Most transit agencies across North America have experienced at least a 50% reduction in ridership, some on the commuter services even more. Julie Tim, CEO of Richmond's Transit System, tell us about what's happening there in Richmond and some of the things you've done, including, I'm interested if you want to share about what you've done when it comes to young people, minors on board the vehicle. Ah, uh, yeah, that one. So, <laughs> a lot of what we've done has very consistent with what we've seen across the country, um, the suspending the fares, having rear door boarding, uh, partitioning off the front of the bus so that only people who need the uh, accessible entry on the front of the bus can use the ramp, um, the increased cleanings, all of those we've absolutely put in place. We put them in place about a month ago, maybe a little bit longer, before COVID really started to, to ramp up in the Richmond area. And of course, that's relative compared to the large cities. We're not nearly um, as impacted as they are. The difference that we're finding is that where a lot of people are seeing drops in ridership of 80% and 90% uh, or more, we've seen a very low drop in ridership comparatively. Our express routes, yes, they tanked, uh, without a doubt. The people that could telework to the, to the state capitol are doing so. But our core routes that we just implemented 15-minute frequency on, we're still seeing ridership on those buses of 20, 30, sometimes even 40 people still on a bus. Uh, it's been very concerning for us. We're taking off all of the buses that we can off of the express routes and starting to caravan or, or have them deploy behind the other buses. So we'll have two buses running behind each other. And even still, our ridership is high. I just this morning got our numbers, our monthly numbers for March came in and our core routes, our local bus routes, and again, this is for the entire month of March, only saw a 6% drop. Um, that's wow. pretty, pretty shows how essential our service is. And it's been a, a struggle for us to try and find a way to keep our operators safe, keep the public safe, and still get people to the essential services they need. Now, what you mentioned before about the youth, uh, we went very quickly in Virginia to all the schools closing for the rest of the school year. I think that's happened across the country in many places. And the day after we went free fair, we had some of our, uh, we had a beautiful spring day and we had a bunch of high school students who decided it would be a great time to go joyride. They jumped on the buses. Um, they were yelling out in the bus windows, hey, come on the bus, it's free. Uh, this is of course, 
worst time in the world for that to happen, we put out a, an immediate announcement that said, okay, we're going to ban kids. And it's not quite what we meant. It was an exaggeration of if you're rowdy, we have the right to have dispatch or supervisors come and take you off the bus, get you to a safe haven. Um, it was a little controversial, but again, we had to make sure that people weren't taking trips beyond essential. Since so many of our trips were already essential, we couldn't risk an increase in ridership because it was free. So we've been battling that. Uh, we finally, I believe, stabled off at about an overall 30% drop in ridership across the system, which means our core local routes are still pretty high. Very good. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you, Julie Tim, uh, CEO of Richmond's Transit System. I'm uh, live Facebooking and live tweeting, and so if you see me looking down a lot, and for uh, <coughs> the guests on the show, make sure you're looking at the chat panel as you may be getting some thoughts and questions sent to you there as well. Uh, and we'll be, ha we'll be taking questions from those of you who are watching um, soon. And so be sure to go ahead and if you want to send a question and go ahead and do so on the Q&A and we'll be looking for that shortly. Jeff Barnett, who is a member of CTAA, I believe, down in Charles County, Maryland, where I used to be county administrator, just texted me and said, we're down 60% on fixed route. So I want to switch to you, Scott, uh, as head of um, Community Transportation Association of America, representing a lot of the mid-size and smaller systems. What are the transit systems across America that you represent seeing, and what are some of the best practices that you are um, hearing about? I think it's interesting, Paul, that you know from the previous speakers, there there came decision points that that folks need to tackle, and this balancing act of essential on one hand and how we were defining that with the lack of availability of PPE and, and kind of public health really talking to a lot of transit people saying, hey, reduce your service. I was getting a dozen calls a day from members asking questions like, hey, should I reduce my service? Or they were hoping that they would hear from their state DOT or from the FTA that uh, they were gonna give you kind of flat advice on what to do. And I found myself saying to folks, they're not. None of those are gonna happen. You're, you've got to make and balance the right decision for your community. And you've got to take into account the essential nature of services. For our fixed route operators, that was, that was obvious and it happened right away. And what, what's been shared here is exactly the decision-making that took place. Um, for our smaller operators, it was uh, immediately deciding essential was dialysis trips, chemotherapy trips. In the NEMT space, there's lots of trips to um, uh, substance abuse treatment programs that really needed to continue to occur. How do we do those and start to ask those right questions that I think Wade and others were talking about when they mentioned, you know, uh, Inez, I know, talked about it with her paratransit system, being able to talk to a passenger and say, that's not essential. We're not going to be doing that. Um, so there's been that. They also know where lots of these at-risk populations reside because they're serving them regularly. So they were able to identify very quickly who would need groceries, who would need at uh, home deliveries of meds and, and other types of things. We've even started to see some um, real, real movement with the smaller agencies into assisting with the healthcare and, and the treatment piece. 
So, so it's been a, it's been a mixed bag like that, and and millions of great ideas that that are that are working. That I think we all need to really be sure to capture when we start to emerge from this, and we want to talk about the value of community and public transportation in our communities. Um, it goes beyond, as we've always said, the ridership. And these are good points where I think we need to capture these and make sure that electeds and other people uh, understand them. Excellent. Thank you, Scott Bogren, Executive Director of CTAA. Uh, we're getting a bunch of questions in now, so I'm going to enter a few, a little bit of Q&A. And one of the first question is uh, an amalgam of some questions, as well as one I wanted to ask you all, which is uh, the great news is, in my opinion, the federal government uh, recently stepped up and as part of their $2 trillion stimulus package, also decided to give the uh, public transit industry $25 billion here in the United States. Sorry, Wade, hopefully your money's coming up there in Canada. Uh, but, um, and I've been working, as you know, with CUDA on, on, on some of that with, uh, with Marco there. But uh, here in the U.S., that was a great blessing. And I know, Scott, your, your organization worked hand in glove with APTA and our good friend Paul Skitellis, the CEO there, uh, and, and their lobbying team to help get that in place. So, the way the formula works for a lot of people who may be unaware of it is that basically the federal government gives, gives funds every year to public transit agencies through formulas. 5307, 5311 are just the names in the law that uh, large systems and smaller systems use. And uh, there was about, I think, 23 billion for the larger system, Scott, is that right? And then 2 billion for the rural areas. Yep. And um, so, but it is a, it's a reimbursement formula. So it's not like they're putting money into your, you know, gas into your tank per se. It's you have to spend the money and then they'll reimburse you like they normally do. So I'd like to ask some of the CEOs and maybe Scott as well, uh, how are you all planning to use that money? Obviously, fair revenues are down, cleaning costs are up. Are there any other unique, so, so it's going to help fill that bucket, right? Uh, what other kind of things are you using the money for? And Scott Nickerson wants to know, what do you want most from your CFO, controller, and budget teams right now? Kind of a related question. Who'd like to answer that? Um, I can go first. Right, this go ahead, is Inez. Um, so what I've asked the CFO and the, and the finance department to do is start looking at um, projecting and forecasting. Uh, the way our revenue works, um, the, the income tax money that we're getting this year are from numbers from 2018. So although COVID is in 2020, it won't affect some of our financials. It'll affect us for the next three years. So we have to begin forecasting instead of a two-year budget now we have to go to a three and potentially a four year projection budget because we have to set aside money now to protect our, our revenue stream in 2022. So to give you an example, we get about $4.5 million a month from what we already know from the 2018 numbers. So we're already anticipating that we're gonna be about 15 million down in 2022. So it is looking at those kind of scenarios and putting aside any reimbursements that we can get into a specific reserve account that we're going to code and be able to show how we're drawing down off of those funds. Um, the only other unique opportunity that we see is to be able to buy the barriers um, that we've been wanting for the buses um, for some time now. Um, and we see an opportunity to spend about $1.2 million on getting those in. I think the biggest thing is a separate reserve account forecasting right now to ensure that we're drawing down 
Um, we believe that we'll lose about our, our fair revenues of about 9.5 million a year. And based on the projection, we're losing about 6 million right now. So, you know, and, and we're looking at what ridership is going to do um, in the next couple of years. So those are some of our things. Interesting. Julie, could I ask you to comment on that and then also maybe comment on how the state of Virginia stepped up and helped you all right at the beginning of the crisis? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, we're a lot more dependent upon our local economy to provide our funding. About 50% of our local budget every year comes from our local partners. Uh, they're suffering pretty badly with the down economy, and I know that each of them are looking to reassess their budgets. Their fiscal year start in July 1, so as they're looking to amend their budgets for next year, I'm watching those closely to see whether or not they're going to level fund us or decrease our funding. We'd already looked to see a possible decrease in local funding before this all happened because, hey, we were, we were, we were in the process to get dedicated regional funding, very exciting. Um, that's, of course, also tied to a lot of the taxation, so there's less money there. The money that we'll get from the CARES Act will help us to replace the, the lost um, income from the fare box. We receive about $6 million to $9 million in fare box revenue. We're hoping that the money we get from the CARES Act will allow us to sustain a zero fare scenario, uh, not just through the COVID, but also through any kind of economic recession or depression that might come out of it. As I already mentioned, so many of our riders are transit dependent making essential trips. A lot of them are impacted by this and don't have the, the, um, the income or the reserves to come out of them themselves. So the longer we can go zero fare, the more we can support the return of our economy back to um, the pre-conditions. The one thing we were blessed with was that the state of Virginia, Department of Rail and Public Transportation, they provided very early on a stimulus or relief funding for us that allowed us to very quickly go to zero fare. And that was on March 18th, I believe I got the information from them on March 18th, and by close of business that day, we went zero fare. And that got us through the first two months of zero fare. CARES Act will get us through the next um, period. Okay, great. Um, anyone else want to comment on any of the financial? situation, how the money might help, what you're going to spend it on, or uh, a kind of a corollary question would be, um, are you stopping anything that you were planning to do because money is down? You know, is there a capital project that you decided to wait on or something like that? Um, Bill, you got any thoughts on that? Well, I just uh, really appreciate the way the FTA has put this money out. And as, as I understand it, you can pull that money down for ongoing operations. So I want to move it from Washington to Rochester as quickly as we can. And uh, I think we can do that in the next three or four months, uh, get it from uh, their bank account to our bank account uh, so that we're able to make more nimble decisions as opposed to waiting two or three months, uh, just using it for specific purposes. I want to use it to buy diesel fuel, pay our operators and mechanics, uh, again, get it into our bank account as quickly as possible. Uh, what I've asked our CFO, go back to the other question you asked, Paul. Uh, I've asked our CFO, I need several scenarios of uh, zero fare for a long period of time, zero fare for a shorter period of time. Uh, that's what I need. Uh, you know, the, the CARES Act is going to take care of the immediate cash problem. We're not going to have to worry about making payroll in six weeks because we'll have federal reimbursement for those expenses. But how long after that will it last? Uh, and so keeping track of the added costs, uh, which uh, we've got our staff doing, 
um, keeping track of the lost fare revenue from the financial staff, uh, but doing that scenario planning. Uh, and then to your question about capital projects, uh, we actually broke ground two weeks ago uh, on a project where when we went out to bid, we had to add a million dollars to the project. It's a design build, which I'm very fortunate we went that structure rather than a design bid build. Uh, but when the bids came in, we had to put the budget up a million dollars. And I talked to our uh, construction manager, and they're expecting it's essential construction in New York State. There's not a lot of other work being done. We're going to get done faster at a lower cost. Uh, so to have something on the street right now, it's a 12 or $13 million project. Uh, we're very fortunate, and our customers and community will benefit. Excellent. Um, Yes, go ahead, Scott. I, I think it's, I, we're urging all of our members, I, I, I like the phrase Inez used, reserves. Try to better understand the long-term ramifications of what we're all dealing with now. Yes, whether you're 53, whether you're rural or urban, you can spend this 100% federal money on anything that you typically have spent on, but that doesn't mean you should. <laughs> and 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 we we just need to know more and we're in the middle of it right now the other thing i think that has been kind of lost in the shuffle is um right at the outset fta announced that all traditional 5307 funds now could be used for operating at an 80 20 match which for big urbans they never had that ability so how do you use the fy 20 funds how do you then you know, reserve and move back to what you've got. Uh, what are we looking at APT and CTAA when we're talking about FY22 approps and FY21 approps? And what, how difficult is that going to be given that they just found $2.2 trillion in the cushions of the sofa, so to speak? So there's a lot of issues and I think time will shake a lot of it out, but prudent, you know, reserves, I think that is absolutely the way for systems here listening today to look at what, what's happening. How will they do that, Scott? If you're um, like, like uh, Bill is saying, I want to get the money from Washington into my account as soon as possible. You know, I don't think there's any threat that the money can be taken back necessarily. But I've heard people say that, that if the money isn't spent over a period of time, Congress could decide to reallocate it. So how can you get the money into your account? and yet still have some reserves. Are you reserving your own dollars on the side is what you're suggesting? You know, uh, the urban systems are gonna get their allocations. Right. The, 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 the rurals are gonna to have to work with the state DOTs. Uh, I've been hearing from state DOTs, they're gonna draw down 30 or 40%, even as much as 50% up front, and then based on last year's allocations, allocate that out. So I do think Bill's, Bill's spot on. There's gonna be the ability to do that. Um, the, the other issue that, that you raised is one that is that we're all trying to um, figure out in this, in this process. All of this is unprecedented, you know, and there's nothing to draw upon. I've been working in DC for 30 years. Trust me, there's never been a $2.2 trillion emergency. You know, a lot of us remember what we dealt with when we were dealing with the ARA and the, the stimulus, and I was talking to somebody who was really involved in that, and I said, remind me, how much money totally were we talking about with the stimulus of 2010 and 11? 
it was 800 million bucks compared to what we're dealing with now. Billion. Uh, yeah, it's so, so um, we, and all, the other thing that you mentioned that people should re recognize, the money is there until it is expended. There's no three-year deadline or four-year deadline. So you can play this out a while. That's good. Good feedback. Thank you for that. Um, Kevin uh, Quinn from MTA, could you, I, I wanted to get back to you on a question which was about a little bit more on the service, but also kind of leads us into some recovery questions. And then Wade, if you're comfortable, I may ask you a question about funding in Canada. So think on that for a minute. That's next. But um, Kevin, what, what's going on with commuter services? I mean, I, I saw numbers the other day out of Long Island Railroad where they were down 90%. And then I heard from you maybe even more than that on some commuter services. So tell us what's happening on that with those riders. Sure. So um, I'd say we have kind of three levels of that kind of long haul commuter service. One, you know, I think Julie noted uh, express buses. So we have a similar setup with, you know, the outside suburbs kind of coming into, into Baltimore. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, we went ahead and uh, suspended those routes. We had seen about an 80 to 90 percent decrease on that. Just not a lot of people going, and those are folks who can uh, a lot of times work from home. Um, our other two big ones is our Mark commuter rail service. So we have uh, Mark uh, commuter rail on uh, the Northeast Corridor, Amtrak owned, as well as the Brunswick and the Camden lines that are owned by CSX. And so we've seen tremendous ridership decreases. Uh, yesterday was it. Uh, uh, three percent of our normal ridership on three uh, percent. Three percent, yeah, down down ninety seven, wow. right? So uh, we had we had uh, a couple weeks ago put in place a reduced service level that basically um, uh, cut service in half uh, on the commuter line when we go to a reduced schedule. And then uh, just a, uh, yesterday, actually, we dropped it uh, another twenty five percent. We cut a few more um, uh, out of there. And then on on commuter bus. I'd say very similar numbers. You know, our commuter bus system in Maryland, we have a very heavy commuter bus system coming out of Southern Maryland, going into DC, uh, from uh, north of Baltimore, down into Baltimore, from Columbia, down into DC, Columbia into Baltimore. And so we're seeing that at, you know, 7% of what it usually is. You know, Seven. So wow. it, uh, those, those commuter services are, are, are down tremendously for sure. And, and I'll also just note that that's, you know, in being so close to uh, Washington, D.C., that's very heavily driven by a federal workforce that is mostly telecommuting at this point. Right. Um, yeah, so yeah, we'll talk about telecommuting. Maybe you, especially Kevin, can think about that and some of those who have larger agencies is, are you going to make any changes? That'll be uh, a question I'm going to ask in a minute. You know, are you going to let people like I work for a technology company, right? So we have, let's say, you know, 100 programmers sitting in an office all day programming. Well, they're home programming now, right? And so the thought is, hey, can some of them continue to do that? Maybe they could go two or three days a week and just come in for, you know, the big group meetings or whatever. And will that help businesses reduce the amount of office space they have to rent going forward? I think that's, and, and then back to you, Kevin, how do you think that's going to impact commuter ridership? I mean, have you done any projections? I mean, I, I think it's going to be a lagging indicator commuter services are versus regular public bus service. When the jobs open back up, uh, I think our transit services, so uh, we'll go back to, um, closer to normal levels, but I'm concerned about commuter service taking a lot longer as people are realizing, hey, I can, you know, even if their business doesn't change, they can talk to their boss and say, you know, to get a little work-life balance here, instead of riding the train down an hour and 15 minutes into DC and then taking an Uber to my office and this whole thing takes an hour and a half, uh, three hours a day out of my life. Can I work from home two days a week? I just showed you for the last three months I did it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, uh, so we haven't done any kind of projections or anything like that quite yet, but um, 
I think you're right on. I mean, I think, um, you know, there are those companies that already had teleworking policies in place. And I think for many of them, you know, that, that employee that was teleworking one or maybe two days a week, shifting to five, you know, that, that wasn't a huge shift for them. There's a lot of other companies and, and government agencies that weren't doing that at all. And, uh, and, and to your point, you know, uh, this, this is, I think, showing some folks that, you know, it can be done, that that technology is out there. Um, I think uh, managers are learning how to manage more remotely now. You know, there's a lot of policies in place of how do you do telework the right way? It's not just people working from home. You know, what are the tasks? How are managers checking in regularly? How do you keep in touch with your staff on a regular basis? Um, and I, I, you know, so to your point, I think um, businesses and companies and agencies sort of learning how to, uh, uh, how to be in this new world is going to have those uh, downstream effects on, on ridership potentially. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Hey, on Paul, that? I want to, Paul, I want to go back to uh, uh, something uh, Scott had said and uh, just, you know, speak to the industry out there. Uh, I like what Inez said about a reserve account. I like what Scott said about don't spend it all in at one time. Uh, but the next time the federal government is looking at transit, I want that money to be gone. I, I don't want them to give us $25 billion in three months from now, six months from now. They go, geez, 10, $10 billion of it is still here. It must not have been as needed as we thought. And so the quicker we can draw it down, uh, and again, don't spend it all. Right. Uh, but but going back to your question to Kevin, uh, I'm not a sociologist. Uh, my dad died last November at 96. I wanted to talk to him. At the end of World War II, when that trauma was over, people moved out to the suburbs and got their own property. It was almost like safety was the big thing. Start your family and when I'm talking to friends right now, I'm finding a five-minute conversation is taking 15, 20 minutes. Uh, I've got a brother that to get past three minutes on the phone is a miracle. We talked for 35 minutes. It wouldn't surprise me to see a shift into the city for people to be around one another after being isolated for so long. I think there's going to be those kinds of changes if this lasts six or 12 months. <clears throat> There'll be changes to how quickly people want to get crowded onto a bus, but I think there'll be other changes of, do we want to be around one another or do we want to be away from one another? How's that anxiety and trauma? What impact does that have? And uh, it will be more than just public transit. There will be lifestyle changes as a result of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, Thank you for that. That's that's uh, insightful. Bill, aren't you chairman of something like a group of bus? What are you head of? Uh, it's called the Bus Coalition, and we partner very closely with Scott and CTAA, uh, trying to uh, improve the 5339 program. Uh, I'm uh, on the board at APTA, uh, president of the Bus Coalition, and a member of CTAA. Uh, I probably should join uh, the Canadian organization as well. Big big fan of transit. There you go. Well, speaking of Canada, thank you for that good segue. Let's go to, uh, to uh, Wade Coombs and tell us what is happening. So I was interviewing Marco D'Angelo, the CEO of CUDA, for my uh, daily podcast, Comfort Corner, about three weeks ago. And he said, Paul, later today, we're going to submit our you know, request for X amount of dollars. He walked me through what it was. But uh, are they still fighting about that up there? What's going on, man? <laughs> good question. I'm sitting here envious of your... Uh my American uh, counterparts down there and all the money you have. Um, 
definitely a different system up here and our funding is different. Like uh, I've worked in four systems now and each one of them were, is, it's the norm up here, totally funded by the municipality. Uh, we don't have options to, to get uh, sales tax, or gas tax to operate our systems. Uh, while we've achieved some really good results on a federal level uh, for capital infrastructure spending, we've, we're, we've seen the most amount of money ever even towards uh, public transit, um, but we, we didn't get any operating. In this current environment, uh, the, the federal government's been very focused on helping individuals who have been laid off and, and finding themselves unemployed, small businesses and, and that, and they've not done anything for public transit or municipalities. Again, we're part of a municipality, so our budget is, is part of the municipal budget. Um, if there's problems within the, in the municipality, then it affects us. Um, I know with our municipality, as many of them are up here, are looking to uh, deferring taxes for residents and small businesses and other businesses to help them get through this problem. So that will impact the, the municipal budget, which then impacts us. Um, but on the federal level and what Marco and the, and the team at CUTA are doing, they did submit a letter on March 30th to the federal government. They were asking for 40 million per month in uh, funding to help replace what's being lost in the fare boxes across the country. I just read a report before this that uh, TransLink, which is one of the largest systems in Canada, in the bank, it's in Vancouver, uh, they're losing $2.5 million a day and so they have to find that lost revenue. They're looking at service cuts now because of that. Now, TransLink is a unique one in BC because they are a provincial entity um, and get funding from the province. So they're unique in BC than the rest of the provinces. Um, but the other thing that uh, Marco and the team are doing is we need that funding now. We need some money to help us now in covering that cost. You know, an example is uh, the federal government has passed uh, uh, some funding, they'll pay up to 75% of uh, people's wages if small businesses and large businesses will keep their employees on the payroll. But that's not an option for us. We're not getting that. Um, but again, one of the other things they're looking at is, again, what do we get immediately to help us? But also as we talk, we won't come out of this. So we're looking at uh, the recovery for the economies and uh, the governments are talking about stimulus packages. So how can we make sure that some of the stimulus packages include public transit projects, um, whether it's, you know, building new terminals, parking roads, garages, whatever it is, how do we make sure that we're part of that in, in a way that helps to uh, take public transit in Canada to the next level and make sure we're getting what we need while helping the economy. Here in Alberta, the province that I'm situated in, we're, we're hit with a double whammy. Um, we are very dependent on uh, fuel. Uh, we have the oil sands here. We have a lot of gas industry. And so with the, uh, the reduction in usage because of the pandemic, plus the gas war that was going on, this province has been hit twice. So we've been having conversations with the province here also about how they can help us out and how they can uh, you know, help municipalities through and public transit. And uh, we had estimated at one point, you know, the, uh, you look at it on a monthly basis, so $21 million in revenue collected by the transit systems in our province. We're losing that, and that's impacting all of our systems and, and our municipalities. So it's a conversation. We're definitely behind where uh, you guys are down in the state. We're having the conversation. 
we've built good relationships with our federal government. We're in a minority government situation right now. So one thing CUTE has been very good at is they've built relationships with all parties. So we've got some, uh, some leverage there to help uh, in this minority government, some of that are maybe more friendly towards uh, transit to help uh, bring that uh, case forward. But Marco and his team are working very hard at, uh, at bringing that to the federal government's uh, forefront and making sure that they, uh, they look at us and don't forget us. That's great. Thank you. Aren't you the head of some group up there too in your region? I uh, chair, CUTA breaks into regional chapters and I chair one, which is the uh, Prairie Provinces and Territories. So basically, if you go from the edge of Minnesota to the uh, edge of, of Washington State, and uh, that's the area I cover, uh, three provinces, two territories, and I go as far north as you can get uh, with the territories. Uh, and we have been doing a lot as an organization and as a chapter. We do a weekly update as to what have you guys What's changed? What have you, what are you doing now? Uh, we send out emails. We had a uh, one of our systems contact us and ask us about wheelchair securement and what are we doing and uh, how are we managing that or, and, and how are we addressing operators' concerns. So what we do is we send out the email to all of our members and get feedback and then we share with each other what's going on. That's great. If you just joined us, we are uh, doing a live CEO roundtable with six of the top public transit CEOs across North America. Uh, if you joined late and you weren't able to hear it all, we'll post this as a regular Transit Unplugged podcast uh, coming up soon so you can hear the whole thing. And those of you who are on it can share it with your friends and, and associates that way as well. Uh, we're also doing, I just want to let people know, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, since this COVID-19 crisis has occurred, I've started up a special podcast under the Transit Unplugged logo, which is called Comfort's Corner. And in it, we do headline news. We also do a newsmaker interview and then a reading from our book, The Future of Public Transportation. This week, yesterday, we had Jeff Arndt on from, um, he's the CEO of the transit system called VIA down in San Antonio, Texas. Um, and then uh, to, tomorrow I'll have Roger on, Roger Morton, my good buddy from Oahu, uh, who runs the transit system in Honolulu. And then on Friday, our guest will be Aaron Pinkerton, who is CEO of BC Transit in uh, the Western part of Canada. Also, I'm excited that a little bit later today, I'll be interviewing Phil Washington, CEO of LA Metro, a good buddy of mine, who heads up America's second largest transit system. And he'll be talking about some of the recovery efforts and how they're moving forward. That'll all be on Transit Unplugged. So make sure if you're not listening, that you you go to transitunplugged.com and and uh, and sign up and we'll send you an email just one time every two weeks and remind you the show is live. That's all you get. We don't we don't uh, we don't hammer you. Have you noticed that since this thing started, every business I've ever uh, been in contact with has sent me an email to tell me here's how we're dealing with COVID nineteen. I never knew I needed so much. How we can help? Yeah, exactly. Um, hey, you know, speaking of that, I was wondering. Are we, how are we using this time? I've asked several people this and I wanted to throw this out there um, just as a general question to everyone. Are you using this downtime as a way to like, get ahead on capital projects? I know some people have been covering it as headline news, you know, so some people were doing construction on tracks. Well, now you can single track because there's hardly anybody riding the train. So it's a good time to work on that, etc. You know, are you moving ahead on this construction project you had going on? How are we using this time? Anybody? Oh, I started laughing immediately when you, you said, said, how are we using this downtime? Um, this Here's doesn't the, feel like downtime. Exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fire every day, um, and it's, it's been a challenge to keep up with. 
Yeah, downtime and ridership. That's what I meant. And some people are cutting service. <laughs> so how are we using this time when there's less people riding? Are we doing anything productive as an example for others? I'll, I'll I, I think Paul. for me, Paul. Oh, go ahead, Kevin. Kevin, go ahead, Kevin. Okay. Uh, I'll just say, um, you know, so on our uh, light rail system, we are doing some uh, work that we've accelerated up. Uh, you know, not, not a ton of work, not a huge amount of work, but you know, in the downtown, uh, just with less trains, less traffic out there, we were able to get that work done. Uh, we also have uh, the Purple Line under construction, our 16-mile-long uh, light rail line uh, outside of Washington, D.C., going from uh, New Carrollton, you know, to Bethesda. And um, uh, some of that work is uh, we were able to accelerate near schools. With the schools closed uh, and that school traffic gone, we were able to do some work uh, close to schools uh, with that. So uh, a couple, couple things we've been able to accelerate, yeah. That's great. Inez, how about Indigo? I think we had some grandiose ideas. We had a good plan, a strategic plan on all the campaigns we were going to do. And then 80% of my maintenance team decided to go out on FMLA. Ah. So they, the, the stimulus package helped in one way, and then the government rule hurt us in another way. You know, there weren't enough safeguards in the program that said if it's a two-family member household, you know, only one member can be out for a period of time. It, it just opened the door. And so now I have 161 people as of today who are out on extended leave. 161. So the things that we had planned to do for us have now been put on the back burner. And so it has really caused a delay in some projects because we don't simply have the workforce. To have, you know, 100 and something extra operators per day, to put it in a perspective, I'm now struggling to put service on the street at a reduced rate because people are calling off. Wow. So it is, it is causing a ripple effect because we weren't involved in understanding how this extended leave could affect how we do our business. I mean, I appreciate the money and all of that stuff, but they should have talked, got, got a little bit more feedback from us on, on how the impact was going to be for transit. That's interesting. Yeah, here in um, Richmond, really part of it is not so much how much we're advancing some of the capital projects. Some of those are going to be put on hold. Uh, a lot of what we're looking to advance are the social policies around our infrastructure uh, and how we're doing our spending and how we're making our priorities. When we look at our dedicated lanes for BRT, some of the areas where we would like to have more dedicated lanes, we didn't have them because the policy was to have on-street parking. Now that the people aren't using their on-street parking, is this a good time to start making some of those changes to our infrastructure and how, how it's used, um, how we deal with the, the fair policy and the equity of it, and advancing some of those conversations that may have been more of a challenge to advance three months ago. So our capital infrastructure, maybe not as much, but our social conversation, yeah, really accelerating that. Anyone else got any thoughts on, on that topic? So I'll take it a little bit different tack, Paul, and I, I agree with Inez on uh, the number of employees that are out on leave right now. Uh, keeping their family safe, keeping the employees safe, and it certainly has an impact on what we do. Uh, our paratransit service uh, is down 80%. Uh, like I've heard, uh, I think Wade uh, and Kevin talk about uh, 
dialysis, medical appointments, those very specific essential trips, but to keep the operators and the equipment busy, uh, we've been, uh, I'm on a regular call with community leaders, the United Way, the county executive, the mayor, the local congressman, uh, and listening to where uh, food needs to be distributed, hand sanitizer. Uh, we've got, and I, I think others have this happening, a distillery that stopped making whiskey. They're making hand sanitizer, but they don't have a distribution network. Uh, so it's getting sent to a central location, and then it's our paratransit vehicles that's distributing it to the uh, community-based organizations. Uh, we worked with the pediatric care for our community. Uh, so uh, we've got uh, mothers uh, of very young infants, up to two years of age. Many would use the bus to get to a well visit for their uh, vaccines, for their measles shots, et cetera. Uh, and the pediatric care folks were very concerned if they do not get these vaccinations, we're going to have another outbreak in six or 12 months amongst infants. Uh, and so they've identified about 600 appointments that we'll be using our paratransit vehicles to do curb-to-curb -curb service uh, for these mothers of young children. Uh, so there's a lot of needs in the community. It requires, as I hear these leaders, being plugged into your local community uh, and then having a flexible workforce uh, to make the community better off uh, during these times. That's great. One, uh, one interesting uh, approach that I heard yesterday from Jeff Arndt in San Antonio is that he is driving his unused paratransit vehicles because they have Wi-Fi on them into public housing projects where they may not have enough internet for students who are trying to do their schoolwork online. And it puts out a signal maybe 200 feet from the vehicle and they can pull one into a community and a bunch of homes and, and apartments can pick up the Wi-Fi signal for their children uh, to do their schoolwork. I thought that was another kind of unique and interesting approach. Um, I wanted to ask, we have about uh, 15, 20 minutes left, and before we kind of get into the recovery mode, and I'm going to ask all of you about ideas you have, and I'm going to share some best practices that I'm hearing uh, start to sprinkle up, but this whole concept of people being able to work from home, is that going to impact your workforce? Are you thinking about making any changes? Maybe you don't want to talk about it now online, but I'm just interested if anybody can talk about it. Do you see that impacting your, your direct workforce? I know that 60% 70% of our workforce is frontline troops, right? They're the ones that are maintaining the vehicles and driving the vehicles and fueling them and the road supervisors and the police officers and all that. But there is a large back office function in a lot of transit agencies, right? HR, finance, IT, procurement, legal, PR, all these groups. Uh, is anyone thinking about how this might impact long term or you allow people to do a little bit more work from home? Uh, this is Inez. Uh, we're already starting to have that conversation with our executive team. Um, they've already been asked to begin to analyze the productivity level of uh, their employees. And uh, I'm seeing higher numbers in with some of our procurement folks. Um, where because we've instituted some more efficient best practices on, you know, simple things like DocuSign. I got there and I was like, how come we're not using DocuSign? And then it's like, oh, we've had it for four years. We've never used it. I'm like, so let's start using it. And then all of a sudden now we're all using DocuSign. Um, so each one is being asked to poll, analyze, and then we're going to work on a remote work from home policy that's beyond this pandemic uh, situation. Because, you know, there is a factor of work-life balance, but things that I've told them is like the whole payroll department can't be out on Friday. You know, everybody just 
cannot show up in that department. There has to be some staggered and things of that nature. And then we found that some employees just aren't good at it. And to be able to have that honest conversation about it. But yeah, we do see that there's going to have to be some changes um, in order to uh, continue moving forward. Any other comments on that? Anyone wants to share? Well, well, Paul, being at CTA, we're two blocks from the White House. So from a, from a, you know, terrorism and a lot of other issues, we've had a business continuity plan uh, for a long time that we went right into always being prepared that we may have to work away from the office for a duration. And um, it's easier with what we're doing than what my colleagues here on the panel are doing. Personally, I don't like it. I, I like being in the office. Um, my, my colleagues would tell you that I'm the one person who never uses telework. Uh, I, I like to be around people and know what's going on and I, I think ideas and things. So it, as with everything else, it's a balance. And I think a lot of systems are gonna move to this um, as they should. Uh, a lot of businesses are gonna move to this. and. And it really leads to um, how, how well we understand travel shed changes and commuting pattern changes within our communities is gonna be so central to how we restart our services and what they look like pre and post uh, pandemic. How do we restart it, Scott? Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas or are you hearing things from your, from your folks yeah. about, we're about at the peak, I think people are saying, around now somewhere in the next week or two or now. And then, so what's the game plan to get riders back on the bus? Yeah, I think there's a couple of, 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 of points of demarcation we need to keep in mind. Um, there's, there's, there's the back end of the so-called wave we've talked about, which let's all hope we're going to get there soon. Um, that's not the time to just immediately jump and open everything back up again, I don't believe. Then there's the period after there's a vaccine. And, and, and I think that's a key moment to keep in mind. People are going to feel a lot more comfortable about getting on a packed bus in Richmond if they know there's, there's a vaccine that most people have and have had access to, rather than, well, the vaccine's not out yet and we're looking at what's happening in China and those are different periods. We're going to do a lot of training with our members um, on not just restarting what you had prior to the pandemic, but giving some critical thought to what you were actually seeing in your community pre and post. Um, so many times I've worked with systems over the 30 years and we've kind of asked and it's been a standard question I would ask a, a manager of an operation like, does the service look like the way it would if you could start it from scratch? Mm. And it's always been this theoretical question because no one would ever start anything from scratch. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, Kevin's at 5% on the mark line. He will be starting basically restarting from scratch. And there's a lot of systems that have routes and services that they know are relatively unproductive. Maybe politicians have forced them to serve these areas, or maybe there's been the, well, that's because we've always served that area that way. I heard, uh, I know Bill's gone through a redesign. Uh, uh, one of you had to have one just postponed. 
a lot of that thinking needs to be brought forward and we ought not to just restart everything, but we, we need to use this as, as an opportunity, I guess. And we're gonna do some training at our expo in Louisville um, in November that got switched to November. We're gonna be next May that in, uh, in Richmond and we'll wanna continue those discussions because I do think it's a, it's a chance and it's, a, it's an important one not to miss. Kevin, what do you think? He mentioned you. What, what are your thoughts about, you know, kind of what everything he said or any of your own thoughts on that topic? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're in the process of putting that kind of game plan together right now. I mean, it, and it, it's, a, it's a great point, Scott, that um, that's got to be thought through really, really carefully, right? Yeah. And, and uh, it's got to be phased in. And so, um, you know, for our standpoint, you know, yeah, those commuter services got to start from scratch. I've got to uh, ramp back up uh, those rail contractors, those commuter bus contractors. And so, you know, uh, what is their ability to ramp up, right? So that's kind of this contracted service side of things. And then um, for our own really unionized employees, um, on the bus side of things, on, on light rail and, and our metro system, you know, how, how do we ramp that up? How do we uh, shift? And in a way, on our, on our light rail and metro, I, I think it'll be relatively easy to kind of kick that back up from a reduced schedule to a, a full schedule again. But the bus side of things, you know, um, a lot of that's driven by attendance. And I think that's going to be kind of continually taking the temperature of the public as well as our workforce of seeing where we are from a public health standpoint um, uh, and where are we with um, uh, you know, positive cases, you know, just, uh, you know, citywide, statewide. I think um, there's a, a lot that's got to go into that. And then the training piece uh, that was noted, I think is also going to be so key because it's a um, it's a new world it's a new environment that we're that we're living in we've all we've all learned a lot and someone has to stop and do a do a, a post-mortem here just to do a debrief on you know what um, uh, what we've all kind of gone through and what have we learned and uh, if there's another wave how do we how do we say okay you know let's gear it back up but we've got to be ready in case there's another wave how do you um how do you ramp back up but ensure that you know you're you're well positioned to go back down again if another wave hits it's how do you how do you create yourself? How do you create the foundation for a more nimble agency um, through this process? Those are great questions. Anybody else want to comment on that? Um, this is Inez. And one of the things that we're working on, it, just exactly what everybody else was talking to, is working with our chamber, our local chamber. They're really dialed into um, some of the major employers in our area, and so we're working with them to start having that conversation with those employers to see what they plan to do when it comes to telemarketing. So it will help us form our decision on what Indigo will or might look like as we begin to ramp back up. Um, you know, it, it's all about realigning the service or right sizing it, um, but we don't know how to right size it if we don't know what other people are even thinking, just as we're having the discussion about telecommuting, you know, um, teleworking, what are they starting to think about? Um, our, our downtown is driven by, you know, all of that ridership. And if, you know, we're getting ready to build a purple line, which is a $155 million project, you know, is the feds, are they going to have concerns that, you know, that investment isn't the best investment for them anymore because the ridership isn't going to be there. So we feel we've got some work to do to prove to the FTA um, and that it is still a wise investment in Indigo. Um, and, you know, and then that'll help us form our decision as well on when we do the next uh, redesign 
And if the redesign has to be the same of what we originally thought it was supposed to be, or does it need to be changed again? That's a really good point. I'll be on a, um, uh, a webinar with um, the Crow CFO Consortium. That's this is a big um, firm that, that does a lot of um, work with transit agencies across the country called Crow. And they have a chief financial officer organization. Bill, you probably know about it, having been one. And I'm going to be a guest on their program. Uh, and Scott Nickerson from that group has been on this call listening. Um, but I think that a lot of financial folks are, are analyzing just what you talked about, Inez, is some of these plans we had in place for these big capital projects that were based on, you know, certain ridership projections. Uh, you know, how's that all going to balance out now? Uh, any other thoughts in general on that topic? Yeah. Julie, any thoughts? Yeah, on Anybody else? Well, I think that ahead, for... Oh, thank you. I definitely think that for us, a lot of when we start uh, looking at the system is really reconsidering if we can maintain the higher frequency on these core capacity routes. Some of them we knew that we need that 15 minute frequency now that we're caravanning or convoying the buses will have higher frequency. Um, and in the time of social distancing, hopefully it'll help spread people among more buses. But when that changes, I really think that what we'll see is because those are core routes and because that's the core of our system, they're going to start filling up. And so do we then have to take those buses out to redeploy them on express routes? Or will the community come back and really have more telecommuting so we can keep those resources on those core routes? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's going to be a very interesting conversation. Yeah. I wanted to give you some information I received today from a colleague of mine uh, over the pond, as they say, in uh, Great Britain, who's been tracking the Wuhan transit system where the outbreak, you know, kind of started from in Wuhan, China. And uh, as of three weeks ago, I was talking with David Zipper this week, who's, um, you know, a colleague of mine who, who's a great thought leader in the industry, a Harvard visiting fellow. And uh, uh, at the end of March, they were at like 65%. Wuhan was back. But as of yesterday, we're tracking their actual ridership data that they have online called RT, Asia RTI uh, passenger data. They're up to 80% of ridership. And this is about a month post pandemic for them uh, on their regular systems. And they are requiring all passengers to still wear a mask. And uh, they're also requiring them to scan their QR code when boarding using their smart cell as part of a government initiative to monitor where people are moving and kind of tracking all that. Uh, that's one of the controversial aspects of what may be coming is, we all saw we in the news this last week that Apple and Google are going to have things on our phone where we can see if we've been in contact with someone, et cetera. So there's other some best practices that are coming out where people are maybe putting on their overhead sign on their bus. This bus was cleaned at 2 p.m. today, Tuesday, you know, uh, the 14th. And so people can see, oh, okay, that bus just got cleaned. I feel a little safer. Other folks are uh, you know, going to continue their new high levels of vehicle and station cleaning with medical grade disinfectants uh, to, to continue that, you know, not just once a night have the buses swept out and some general wipe down, but actually this, this higher level, maybe multiple times a day. Other folks are moving toward mobile ticketing to reduce the need to touch cash or paper uh, or vending machine or uh, ticket vending machines. Other folks are talking about deploying ultraviolet lights that have showed promise in killing the coronavirus. Some folks are having in collaboration with city officials and celebrities to amplify the message that transit is safe and back in business. We've had so many politicians telling people, and I'm a recovering one, uh, telling people, you know, stay off the bus. It's only for essential workers. We're going to need that message you know, changed in a little bit to say, okay, no, 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 now we want you to come back. And so, uh, and we need to make sure that the message isn't, the, you know, that 
uh, transits a big petri dish where germs are spread and that's kind of the message unfortunately that's been given by folks uh, by some folks out there and I think irresponsibly personally but that's just my personal opinion uh, I think that if we can keep stores safe and we can keep other uh, places safe where people can ride we certainly can keep the vehicle safe people like Julie and others have done the social distancing on the vehicle where they're only allowed one person per row and a lot of agencies have gone to 50% vehicle capacity um, and so there are ways to maintain our cleanliness and we're gonna have to kind of message that out and and one other tidbit and then I'm interested in your feedback on this in the last couple minutes is many agencies are thinking about continuing to offer free trips for a little while longer both as a way to say thank you for drivers from you know for staying home and as a way to help kickstart ridership so any thoughts on those or any other mechanisms that you think in the last couple minutes here could be effective in helping to have the industry recover yeah i just i want to repeat what scott when we opened this section he talked about the different peaks that we're going to have. Uh, in New York State, they're talking about reopening. Uh, I was shocked to find out New York City people would stay home. You know, I understand in Wuhan, China, with their QR codes, the police will come if you don't stay home. But we're Americans. We're New Yorkers. We do what we want to do. <laughs> we have been told to do what we have to do to stay safe. And uh, it's a level of obedience, a level of submission that I didn't know that we had. Um, and that kind of mental change, uh, as I said earlier, it's going to have long-term impact. Uh, I know we're talking about, you know, ramping up, but I think we can have this conversation again six or 12 months from now because until I know I can be safe, you know, watching the Masters on Sunday, Tiger Woods winning it two years in a row on CBS, because uh, of the replay this year. But who's going to stand shoulder to shoulder like that for five hours? I, I'm watching the crowds. Who's going to do that right now? Right. How long is that going to take? And uh, it's, so it, it's going to take a lot of things to go back to a restaurant where everyone's seated together, to go to a ball game, to go to an NFL football game. Are you going to have that tailgate party with those same friends? You know, it, there's a lot that's going to happen uh, transit is going to be part of it. I think one thing I've learned is just how essential we are to the communities that we serve. And I think there'll be more investment because we were the way people got around at these times. That's a perfect way to wrap it up, I think, Bill. I want to thank uh, Bill Carpenter, who is CEO of RTS in Rochester, Julie Tim, CEO of Greater Richmond Transit uh, GRTC in Richmond, Kevin Quinn, CEO of MTA Maryland, Wade Coombs, uh, head of Strathcona County Transit, Scott Bogren, executive director of CTAA, and Inez Evans, CEO of Indigo, for this really interesting look at what's happening inside the transit industry, how we're responding to the COVID-19 crisis, and perhaps a way out, and a good sober reflection from Bill at the end end that we don't want to do things too quickly but I think once again transit will be a leader in the community and I'm excited and enthused about the fact that at least here in the U.S. perhaps we've crossed the Rubicon when it comes to the federal government and their investment and involvement in public transit like Europe and Australia and some other countries that have had heavy federal involvement and investment in transit America hasn't really been there for a long time we've had our investment in highways and in other uh, transportation modes but never really a lot in public transit the way I think it should be and now as you mm -hmm. said Bill this is the message 
for all of our political leaders and the funding agencies is that we don't just make the wheels and the bus go round and round. We make the wheels of our economy turn round and round. And the essential workers that make our society and our economy run are the folks that are using public transit. And so um, we, we need to make sure that that investment, if there's another round of stimulus or another round of, um, of uh, some kind of capital investment where we go to, you know, infrastructure week again in, in Washington, we need to make sure that transit and our public transit facilities and capital projects are well-funded. That's, you know, Napoleon understood it, you know, that the only way to get big capital projects done is for federal involvement back there, uh, you know, 100 years ago or 200 years ago. It's the same rule today. The national government really needs to be involved in helping to fund public transit if it's going to be uh, continue its role in helping our society work. Scott, do you give me a big amen on that? Absolutely. We'll, we'll keep fighting. <laughs> so I'll tell you what we got coming up next. Uh, we had six awesome CEOs on today. We'll have some more on for the next two weeks. Uh, in in uh, So today is the 14th. We did our CEO roundtable uh, next week on Tuesday, April 21st at 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Eastern, just like this one was. We'll have an executive roundtable preparing for beyond COVID-19, business as usual, Lawrence Skyver and Peter Stark. Uh, Lawrence, head of uh, Sunline Transit, one of my good friends in the industry who's, who's led the uh, zero emission bus uh, hydrogen especially message for the country and Peter Stark, GM of Whatcom Transportation Authority, plus some other CEOs will be joining us that day. And then the following week on Tuesday, April 21st at 2 p.m., uh, James McDonald, director of Saskatoon Transit, will join a number of, of high-tech leaders who will talk about using technology in order to help our transit systems move forward. Once again, thank you to all of you who joined us today, and uh, thank you for our special guests on this, uh, on this CEO roundtable. Thanks for being with us.